And having stood in his power, you may be seated now in his power. But we are not going to remove ourselves from his power, for that would be fatal. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, who willingly went to the cross to bear our sins, that we might be forgiven filled with the Spirit of God, that we might stand in the power of Christ. Our Father, I pray now that you might take our hearts and work them over. You have been pleased to hear our praise and song. You've been pleased to hear our cries in prayer. And we acknowledge now that you have something to say to us. Father, I believe that this is a a vital message from you to us at this moment. So I ask that you might cause our hearts to be attentive and responsive. May we not be distracted. May we be focused by the power of God's Spirit toward the Word of God that our lives may be shaped and prepared and equipped for the life that you have for us. I ask this in Jesus' name. There are two major drives that that shape the human sense of well-being. Every political advisor knows it. Every advertiser knows it. The pollsters track it. Those who wish to be elected or stay elected manipulate it. Human resources departments search for it, test for it. We search for it in the people that we're drawn to. Those two major drives are confidence and security. We find ourselves living uh, daily with a need to explain the things around us. And and in order for us to have confidence and security, we generally and genuinely avoid mystery and surprise and the unexplained and the unexpected. In fact, the difference, I think, between the normal human life and the normal Christian life is based on what it takes to feel confident and secure. The normal human life, in terms of security and confidence, requires guarantees and predictability, tangible assurances, a period of of consistency, a track record of some sort, uh, material resources, an A-OK health checkup, All of these things provide confidence and security to the normal human life. For the most part, in our world, order reigns. God has established it that way. Science not only strives to explain that order, but attempts in every way to control it. 
because that's what we prefer. We prefer predictability, consistency. Larry Crabb, in his book called Connections, writes this, those ruled by a passion to explain, for those who insist on feeling confident in their own plans, mystery is offensive. But for the Christian, the normal Christian life, Isaiah, the prophet, writes in Isaiah 50.10, Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. And now, by the way, um, Isaiah is, is writing and proclaiming this to God's people. He is not talking about those people in the dark outside of God as we describe people in darkness, he's describing the the day-to-day life of someone who is devoted to God, who finds themselves in a dark tunnel, in a challenging moment, where answers are not coming quickly. And he says, let him or her who is walking in that moment, who has no light, can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. He goes on to write in that particular text in Isaiah 50, an alternative way to live. In verse 11 it says this, But now, all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, those of you who fumble around for a flashlight, relying on your own strength and savvy, walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. There are two ways to live when you are in the dark, when you are perplexed, when you don't know where you're going and you don't know what the next step is. You can... Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God. Or you can attempt to light your own fires and figure out your own way out. And God says, you will lie down in torment. So when we find ourselves, Crab writes, in a dark tunnel and aren't sure how to get out... Is our stronger impulse to trust God or figure out what to do? That's the question for today. And I don't want to leave here really quickly and just move on to the sermon. I want you to sit and contemplate for a few seconds that question. Because that's a really important one in our lives. What's your first kind of automatic reaction? It's one thing to sit in church and give the right answer. It's another thing to live it on the basis of our our automatic reactions, when we are in a dark tunnel, what is our natural inclination? What is our first inclination, our strongest impulse? Is it to trust in God or is it to try and figure out what to do? Many of you have faced or are facing or will face a crisis of faith. You'll find yourselves in a moment that you would call a dark tunnel. You can describe it, you're presently in it, or you will be 
And depending on which way you go, you will either become deeper with God and have a richer experience of faith and trust in Him, or you will be ruined spiritually. I want to take you on a journey this morning in John chapter 21 to an event in the lives of the disciples post-resurrection. I think it's most appropriate as we've been following along the last several weeks. We, we've followed along in the life of Christ, but we've also had experiences tagging with the, the disciples who were tagging along with him. In the triumphal entry, uh, the disciples were all excited about uh, this king coming to Jerusalem, the Messiah, the, the promised one who was going to deliver them. He was going to now claim his kingdom and he was going to reign over the world and Israel was going to be put back at the major center of the world scene and they were going to get cabinet posts and, and everything was going to work out really well and, and everybody was going to be under the, the control and, and, and protective uh, of uh, protection of Jesus Christ. And, and, and they were all excited about that. And then as the days unfolded of that week, they witnessed horrific things happening where Jesus was taken and, and was beaten and, and, and whipped and, and persecuted and spit upon and then nailed to a cross and, and put in a tomb and he died. And then they thought all was lost and then he rose again and he appeared to them. And wow, all in a week... I think the disciples, after that week, were suffering from post-traumatic distress syndrome. You think? I I honestly believe that, and, and if you haven't been in a really horrific moment in your life, perhaps you don't understand this. But even if the outcome is really good, It doesn't change the fact that you have been so touched emotionally and with such great and burdensome stress that the reset button of your life is kind of out of whack. You don't get it all back in like a couple of hours. And in spite of the fact that Jesus arose, I think the disciples were in grave stress and would be for months to come. It's, I think, under those circumstances that Jesus shows up in John chapter 21. Though Christ had rose from the dead so drastically where their lives changed. So stressed were they that I think Jesus shows up to reboot their computer program. You never go back to the way you were after a horrific, stressful time. Never. You're always changed. The question is, what are you going to be like from this point forward? I want to um, talk to you about four key questions this morning that I think come out of this text and I hope will help you in your life or will set you up for what might be going to happen in your life that come out of this text. But let's first read it together. 
John chapter 21, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, Jimmy and Johnny, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. Called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you've just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. 153. By the way, this was no light net. Perhaps it weighed about 300 pounds. Peter jumps in and hauls it out all by himself. He's no weakling kind of wimp guy. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. So it says in the text, in verse 1, that Jesus appeared. In fact, the word appeared is used twice. The word that's translated in your NIV, happened, is also the word appeared. He appeared this way is really how it should be translated. And importantly so. There's a stress on the word appeared. It also appears at the end of the story. It's locking us in. It's the bookends of the story. It is... The important reality. Jesus showed up. Now, uh, it's important for us to um, understand that this word appeared that's used here is is, uh, a word for revealed himself or manifested himself. It's not the same word you would use if, if I walked into the room and you all said, Hey, Rick just appeared. I would appear differently. I walk in, but Jesus appeared. It's a post-resurrection appearance. It's a a different reality. It's as if he's coming from a different dimension. Jesus revealed himself to them there at Galilee. He he went there because the angel had already told the disciples that that you need to go to the Sea of Galilee uh, post-resurrection because he will meet you there. And so he was coming good on his word, on his promise. But there's more to it than that, I'm convinced. Particularly by the stress on the word that he appeared. He revealed himself. By the way, which is 
an encouragement to all of us who for years have been praying that one of our loved ones would understand and comprehend the message of the gospel, I can assure you that God reveals himself to people and they respond to him. Don't give up. Jesus appears. Now, we all know that Christ was alive. He had risen from the grave. And the disciples knew that Christ was alive. The question on the table is, how would he, the fact that he was alive, shape their lives from this day forward? That's the important reality. Death, for all intents and purposes, had died. So how now are God's people going to live? And how now are God's people going to die? The fact that Jesus is alive should make a significant difference in our lives. So the question that Jesus was answering for them all over again is a question we want to put out this morning. The first question, is he or isn't he? That's a significant question that has to be faced in your life. Is he or isn't he? I mean, they had seen him appear in Jerusalem. They've now gone to Galilee. They've now gone out fishing. I submit to you that they are suffering from some significant emotional stress. They're not back to normal, whatever that ever is. And Jesus shows up. When, um, I, I never know who I've told my childhood stories to, so I, forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but when I was a little kid, I was, um, bedtime was one of the more traumatic times in my life. That may explain why I always stay up late, even now. I'm just like a night person. I don't like going to, going to sleep. Um, I, I just, there were just too many traumatic events that could happen to a child at night when it gets dark laying in your bed. And so for me, that was a horrifying time of night. Although, I must say to you that, that it was strategic for me to make sure that I got to bed reasonably early before my parents went to bed because I wanted to make sure that when I went to bed, all the lights in the house were still on except the one in my room. The door was open enough that a stream of light could come in my room so it wasn't totally dark. And I could hear my parents shuffling around in the house. Because after all, when that traumatic emergency occurred to me and I was laying on my bed, I wanted to know that somebody was there and would attend to my needs very quickly. I, I didn't like it when my mother and father went to bed and went to sleep and, and I was in a dark room all by myself laying at the very center of my bed because horrible things can happen. Like one of your appendages can happen to go over the edge of the bed and that monster that lives under the bed can suck you under there and you'll never be heard from again. And I wanted to at least go down screaming so that my parents would come in and, and wrestle me back into this world. That's why I'm so crazy today. I had all these things going on in my life. I think that's why Jesus showed up at Galilee. They, they were so traumatized, so stressed, that Jesus wanted to show up again and tell them, you know what? I'm here. I exist. I am. 
I'm alive. And I'm going to keep showing up. When you need me, I'm going to be there. You see, because several days from this particular incident on the Sea of Galilee, he was going to pack them all up and they were going to go back to Jerusalem. And he was going to stand with them on the Mount of Olives. And he was going to give them a really important promise. He was going to say to them that, that, that I want you to be fishers of men. I want you to go out and catch people. I want you to go into all the world and, and, and do the ministry. And, and by the way, I'm going to be with you always. Even unto the end of the age. And this was an important moment, an important harbinger of what was to come. I'm going to be with you guys. You see, um, the, the reality of our faith is this. We must believe. Anyone who wants to please God must believe what? That he is. That he exists. It was going to make a difference how they would live. See, Jesus was commissioning them. And, and it was going to matter when they were out there in the trenches with people that their lives were committed and that they were fully persuaded that the, what they were teaching people was true, that Jesus came and walked on earth and Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins and Jesus was buried and really died and Jesus rose again victorious over death and, and, and Jesus really exists because we have seen him and we have handled him and we have touched him. And it would matter when they stood before people who were skeptics that people would see it in their lives. There was an emotion and a passion that couldn't be easily dismissed. He is. And it makes a huge difference to people that you really believe. It shapes your life. It shapes your passions. It shapes your resolve. Believing faith shapes life choices and actions and attitudes. You can't live as if he isn't or sometimes isn't and please him too. You can't live as if he's partially available to you. He promised to be with you Always. So is he or isn't he? There's a second important question um, that Jesus surfaces, I think, for us. He, he's standing on the side, the shore there, and he says, Hey, guys, haven't you any fish? You kind of, um, their response, of course, is No. You kind of have to be a fisherman, I think, to, to really get the full gravity of the situation. I, I mean, these guys are masters of their trade. They're, they're good at what they do. They've been doing all the right things. They were out fishing at night, that's the deal. And they caught nothing. They're skunked. They're not only suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder... But they can't even get anything to feed their families. Like nothing's working out. This is a really 
rotten moment. And they're really frustrated. And there's this guy on the shore who kind of says to them something that just kind of twists the knife. Hey, guys, haven't you caught anything? It's like um, when you're standing down at Oshawa Creek, you know, and you've been doing your best fishing. And some dude walks along with a dog. And you know the guy's never had a fishing pole in his hand in his life. And you've got all the stuff. I mean, you've been doing everything right, and nothing's happening. And he's like, how long have you been at this? What, what, are, you, what are you using? You, you read books? What do you, and you haven't caught anything? It's like, you know, you just, you just want to throw this guy in the creek. And so their answer, their answer was kind of terse. It was like, no. The second question that I think comes out of this at this moment is, are, are you going to depend on your systems, your strategies, your effort, or the empowering work of God? You see, the temptation with all of us, or most of us, I'm sure, is, is we believe God is... But the rewards of life come from our strategies and our systems and our, um, our self-effort and our, our, our hard work. Yeah, I can buy into the idea that God exists, but, but that he's a rewarder. We train ourselves, by the way, making sure we've covered our bases. We train our kids to do that. You know, build up your just-in-case stuff. You know, I can can produce the basics in my life without even relying upon God, so let's make sure I get all the basics in line. You know, I'm listening now, of course, in this financial time, this crisis. We need to move on to the second point there. We're thinking about the crisis of life and, and, and what we need, and um, it's interesting, all kinds of advices out there, like uh, what you all need to have is three months of living expenses all saved up just in case something happens. Now, by the way, I don't want to get email from all you investment counselors and all that saying, you know, look at, of course that's good advice and sound advice. But does that give you confidence and security? Can you ever have enough months saved up? I mean, the disciples, they're out there plying their trade, doing their thing, the thing that they knew how to do best. They had the systems down pat. They had the strategies. They had the self-effort and the hard work. And so we set up for ourselves health and exercise systems to cheat ill health. We set up for ourselves religious systems to, to cheat evil and bad things that will come into our lives. We, we hope that if we show up today, Monday's going to be good, because God owes me one. It's kind of like a good luck charm. We um, try to cheat poverty by having all kinds of good investments. How's that been working for you lately? We have production strategies, you know. 
to prevent being skunked. Sales manager I had when I was in sales used to say, Rick, I'm going to guarantee you a production strategy. You make 10 phone calls, you will have one sale. Guaranteed. That's why I had to get into the ministry business. If you go fishing at night on the Sea of Galilee, you're going to get a net full of fish. That's a production strategy. We have tidy formulas. Train up a child in the way he or she should go. And when they are old, they won't depart from it unless they choose to. And then what? Yeah, you had a tidy formula. You had a strategy. You had a system. And they didn't cooperate with it. God isn't programmable. Life isn't a guaranteed system. As if I'm not preaching to the choir. The formula, the system didn't work. Not tonight. Not tonight. Your best efforts, right most strategic move, full throttle passion, they're out there in the Sea of Galilee doing everything right to get nothing. And then this guy walking his dog comes to the side of the stream and says, um, what are you fishing for? Trout. Here. He throws you a spool of string says tie a safety pin on the end of that thing put a little piece of bread on that pin and splash around in the water as much as you can you're like what I mean that's what they were hearing Jesus tell them to do are you understanding me he was telling them, go, go throw your, wa- your, your net on the right side of the boat in uh, full sunlight and you will find some. Now, I, I'm, I don't know all of the um, intricacies of fishing on the Sea of Galilee, but my guess is that the reason that you fished at night is because they had fairly crude nets and the fish would see the net. It's like, uh, we're not going in there today because we can see it. But at night, they, could, they couldn't see it. So, you know, the disciples are like, oh, my goodness. Okay. The system, the strategies, out the window. With minimal human effort, it's not strategic, it's awkward, it's least likely. And then they find out. That not only does Jesus exist, but he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. How about that? How about that for a key lesson in faith? Jesus is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Confidence in systems and strategies has to die in your life. Not only to be usable by God, 
but to live abundantly in a sinful, fallen world filled with the unexpected, unplanned, and unmanageable. God is killing it in each of us. He's killing it in you. I don't know where you find yourself at right at this very moment, but, but if you're in this dark moment where the systems aren't working, the strategies aren't working that used to work, your effort isn't working, nothing seems to be working, he is killing your confidence in systems and strategies and human effort so that you will be usable to God. And by the way, living abundantly in a sinful, fallen world is um, an unpredictable scenario. You see, he was going to be asking these guys to go out and start catching people. Catching fish is one thing. Fish don't beat you up. Fish don't put you on a cross. He he was going to ask them to go out and catch people. And um, there were going to be unplanned and unmanageable events that took place. And, And what then? Your confidence in your systems and your security and your predictabilities, it's got to die. Or you will spend your days beating yourself up, agonizing over questions like, what did I miss? What did we do wrong? This uh, fishing trip and beach fish fry is a setup for the ongoing ministry and mission that he has for them, right? To catch people in a theater of operation that is hostile to humans. So in a sense, he's giving them a, a living illustration of how to, how to fish when everything is against you and human expertise isn't enough. How to live big and fight to catch people for Christ too. And so it says they threw the net in. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who's by the way John, the author of this gospel, he always writes his own himself into the story by saying the disciple that Jesus loved. Because <laughs> I don't want to say John, because then you'll think I'm conceited, but I, I was excited about the fact that Jesus really loved me. He's young, by the way. He's old when he wrote this, though. And so uh, Peter, of course, in his usual way, it's the Lord, he jumps in and, and, and covers up himself because he was out there fishing in his skivvies uh, with the guys. And, um, and so the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net, and they tow it in, and Jesus said, they'll bring some of the fish you've just caught. And Simon Peter climbs aboard and drags the net ashore. It's full of large fish, 153, but not even so... With even so many, the net was not torn. And, and, um, and there's this dramatic object lesson of an earlier sermon that Jesus had preached to them, which, which I'm sure they weren't motivated listeners back then, but they're all ears now, back in John 15. And, and the question, the third question that, that's being surfaced here is, are you going to be okay with a lot, a little, or, or not being needed at all? In this ministry that I have for you, in this mission that I have for you, are you going to be okay if there's a lot, if there's not very much, if you're not even needed at all? Are you going to be okay with this? Because we, um, 
In John 15, Jesus had said to them that the first five verses, he says, I'm the true vine, and my father's the gardener. He cuts off every branch of me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. 153 fish in a stuffed net kind of fruit. It's, um, it's about me working through you guys. Not you working independently for me. And so they did it, and the net was full. And there was 153 fish. There are a lot of writers who've made a big deal out of this 153 fish. I'm not going to take, well, I'll tell you one of them just because it's so entertaining. The mathematicians will love it. If you add 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 all the way to 17, you get 153. You're saying, so what? No, no, there's, there's more. 17 is made up of the sum of 10 plus 7. 10 being the number of completeness, 7 being the number of the gifts of the Spirit. You know what I think? As I'm reading John's account, who's very meticulous, tells detail after detail, they just wanted to count the fish and divide them up among themselves and happen to be 153 of them. What do you think? You go with that one, Jan? Because I know you'll talk about it in the Sunday school class next week. 153. But here's the interesting thing. John found it interesting anyway. He says the net didn't tear. Now, he, he said that because it's unusual. The expectation is this net would tear. So many fish. Now, I do think there's something to that. See, I, I think the message, of course, was you're going to go out and be fishers of men. You're going to go out and catch people. And I want you to know that you're never going to be using implements and instruments and equipment and all that that is going to be unable to hold that the resources that, that God gives you will always be able to contain and take care of the ministry and the mission vision that God has. I believe that, um, that, that God will... Um, his mission for us is, is that these, these walls, no matter how much He does, no matter how many people He stand, sends to us, these walls will stand up to it. And he'll provide the resources we need to, to take care of the, the ministry and the mission that He has for us. And that won't tear. All that the Father has given me, Jesus said, I lose none of them. No one can pluck them from my hand. In conclusion, 
Jesus says to them in verse 12, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Obviously, his post-resurrection appearance is in some way different than what they anticipated, or he doesn't look exactly. So when we... When we see um, people in their glorified state, we may not recognize them exactly. It may be some sort of... And so this, this appearance is, is confusing to them a little bit, but they don't ask because Jesus has said to them, come and, and, and have breakfast. And they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. And by the way, he already had fish on the barbecue before they even brought the fish. And so he's got fish for them. So whether, whether they bring this catch in or Jesus supplies it himself, they don't need to worry. He provides. And so he asked them, though, to come and, and just, just sit with him, just be with him. As the story winds up here, the fourth question is this. When it gets off the map dark, what then? In this sinful, fallen world, when the number of questions you have about the incident bury the possible answers you can come up with, what then? Jesus said, um, you better decide whether your life is going to be characterized by rushing to your systems and your plans and your strategies, fumbling around for a flashlight, or whether, in fact, you're going to just come and sit with me, trust in me, be with me. The um, prophet Isaiah tells us why. But now all you who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, go walk in the light of your fires and of the torches you have set ablaze. This is what you will receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. What does he mean by that? If you are... um, If you are going to be committed to your strategies and your systems and your flashlight, when the dark time comes, you are going to spend a lot of sleepless nights lying on your bed in torment with all the what-if questions. You know, I I loved those kids. I gave them everything. Why? Why? I, I, I gave my wife my life. I gave her everything. Why, why, did she, why did she leave me? I've put everything into this business. What, what happened? And you know what? You'll, um, you'll lie on your bed tormenting yourself, beating yourself up incorrectly. Because sometimes you didn't do anything. Those guys went out fishing. They did nothing wrong. They did everything right. And it didn't work out. 
Jesus said, come out of the boat. Come and sit with me and have breakfast. Connect to me. Relate to me. I'll give you rest. I am the answers to the questions. Trust me. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm taking you. Follow me. In verse 9 of Isaiah 50, the answer is, it is the sovereign Lord who helps me. Our Father, as we wrap this up this morning, thank you so much for the timing of this presentation because, Lord, I know that the application is broad enough that it will touch many different circumstances in this congregation. And, Lord, I am so thankful that you are the God who shows up. You um, will be with us to the end of the age. You are a rewarder of those who diligently seek you. Even when we can't see the see our way through the dark tunnel. So I pray, Father, that in the choice to try and find a solution ourselves or trust in God, that we will be live big, trust big people. We're asking in Jesus' name. Crab writes, when the lights go out, when our dreams shatter, and there's no way to piece them back together, that's when our questions are most likely to change. No longer do we ask, am I right? We realize we can't be right enough to make things happen as we want. Instead, we ask, whom do I trust? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because of my strategies, my systems, my self-effort, my hard work. No, because what? You are with me. That's the message on the Sea of Galilee that day. And the message that continues to resound down through the ages. In the dark tunnel of life moment or on the other side of it. Who are you going to trust? What are you going to depend on? It is the sovereign Lord who helps us and none other. Our Father, thank you for that reminder. And we realize that at the end of that text, Jesus appeared, it says, for the third time. Why? To remind us all that Jesus appears. Jesus is with us. Jesus is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Trust Christ. So, Lord, it is the urgent prayer of our hearts that you would help us to trust him more. For Jesus' sake.